All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be in verses 18 through 22 this morning. Um, and just to make sure that we're continuing to keep in mind where we are and the trajectory of Peter's letter, what it is that he's trying to communicate to us. Um, let's go over just a couple of things. So this is where you get to participate a little bit. Uh, don't, don't leave me hanging up here. Uh, what is it that is the main indicative that Peter has, has founded all of, all of what he's saying on? That God loves us. There was like three of you that got that. That's good. All right. Um, and he does. He does. He loves us. In fact, he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us and to rise again and continues to provide all that we need in order to be able to uh, understand his love in fuller and fuller ways every single day. And most importantly, that it would give our suffering meaning. That's the section of the letter that we're heading into. He's going to circle back around to the indicative heavily. In fact, he's going to do it here. He's going to call for us to remember uh, one very critical truth about the lordship of Christ. And then he's going to call us to remember how one of the sacraments that is applied to us, if you've been baptized, uh, how that's to be used throughout the life of the believer as a means of grace. And so um, it's critical that we recognize that if you are uh, a, a believer in a fallen world, what is guaranteed for you? Suffering. You will suffer at some point, right? It could be persecution, uh, which is the one thing we all, we, we don't want, and, and that we would rather that be for someone else. But you're going to suffer also too, just having to say no to things. You're going to suffer by having to live differently and in such a way that the world is going to look at you and say, uh, that's weird. You're weird. Something's off with you. You, you. you are making us feel bad about who we are. Get away from us. And so there's all sorts of kind of uh, relational and social costs, as it were, to being a Christian. Um, and so the suffering comes also, too, in just our own wants and desires. There's just things, if you're honest, that you just want to do, right? There's just things that you, you, you it's just, it feels like gravity, it feels like a natural desire, right? And so you think, what, well, what could be wrong with something that we feel we want to do? So sometimes the suffering comes in when you are denying yourself that want because you recognize that it goes against God's covenant. It goes against God's law, God's word, and his calling to us to be believers. Unfortunately, in our culture, uh, there's, a, there's a huge backlash against anything that, that contradicts your personal feelings. Uh, I periodically listen to podcasts by ex-evangelicals or radical anti-theists just, just to see how uh, how the other side lives sometimes and kind of what they're saying. And some of these podcasts are podcasts that people are listening to as well. And so I like to kind of just keep a pulse on these things. And it's fascinating to me, uh, one that I listen to in particular <clears throat> called The Airing of the Grievances, uh, which is uh, Derek Webb and Jamie Lee Finch, who's a radical feminist sex witch. That's her term, not mine. And so she, they were making fun of the fact that, that, that God's people claim to hear his voice. Like they thought that was utterly ludicrous, just foolishness, that people could say they claim to hear God's voice and that they got anything out of the reading of God's word, okay? Later in the show, now you try to keep up and, and tell me if you see anything off with this. 
Later in the show, she mentioned a book that she was reading, and I don't remember the title, and I'm not even sure she gave the name, but she said, every time I read that book, you know how I know it's true? I tingle when I read it. And that tingling, by the way, comes from uh, her, her femininity, which she refers to as external to her. As if, as if her femininity is, is actually, she refers to it as her, and it is outside but inside of her and is leading and guiding her. And how she knew that this femininity existed is she was a missionary actually in England, uh, in London. And she, got, she was sick all the time. And so what she said was that her, her uh, got her out of this abusive situation because of her bad gut health which bad gut health is real, by the way, and can't affect how you think. Don't get me wrong here. Uh, but is, so you're going to make fun. Let me see if I get this right. You're going to make fun of people who say they hear the voice of God, and when they read God's Word, they get something out of it. But you tingle when you read uh, this other book, and your femininity is external to you, operating on, on a level that is sub-operative sub to you, but somehow more sovereign than you. Really. I've threatened to come up with an alias and oppose these things online somewhere, and Wes is, is longing for me to do it, but I'm not going to. And so uh, it just frustrates me. But, but you see what I'm saying? So it's, it's interesting how the world, my wife is chastising Wes right now. Church, church discipline just kind of partially happened. And so, um, but... But you, you follow what I'm saying, like the, the way that the, the world is kind of pushing against things, what, part of what's maddening is it's not even consistent, uh, even within itself. And so that's part of what we are going to suffer is because what the world is saying is we need to trust our feelings based on any number of interesting criteria, but you can't trust God. You cannot trust a, a book that was written so many years ago, but if you want to call yourself a witch, that's awesome because that's historic and good. That's one of the arguments she made. It's fascinating. So in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for Christ has overcome the world. And so if we know we're going to suffer, then it's important that we prepare for it in some way, shape, or form. Otherwise, it can throw us off of the indicative, the foundational truth that God loves us, right? So this becomes a critical thing that Peter's trying to get them to understand. So he's moving through the letter. He went from the indicative of God's love to all the imperatives of how to live in the world. It's crucial that we remember that Peter's greatest concern is not actually their lives. His greatest concern is that they live in such a way that people would come to Christ. That they would do what they do for the life of the world, not the protection of the church. Not for the, the preservation of their lives. In fact, what he's asking them to do is actually going to cost them more and more. And this is the section of the letter that he's getting to. He's going to tell them this is going to grow in cost to you. But take heart, for your Savior has paid that cost already. And so as we transition from what uh, Matt shared with us last week from 
the previous verses as he's kind of wrapping up the, the imperatives and shifting to back to this indicative, this calling to live as Christ does, to live without fear and anxiety, which I think is very pertinent to all of us in this room. The question that I have for us as we, as we uh, get further in is, how do you deal with your fears and anxieties? We all have them at varying levels, and you may wish you didn't have them at the level that you do, but it's real and its consequences. You battle these things. We all do. So how do you deal with them? What brings you the most comfort in the midst of your fears and anxieties? Because that's telling. Uh, whatever brings you the most comfort, that's what you have the most faith in. That is what's most foundational to you. And to take a phrase that we often use here um, is, and I've used this in terms of sin, so don't hear me saying that if you have fear or anxiety, it's automatically sin. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, he's upset about it, but he'll, he, he's going to be okay here in just a second. Uh, but, but fear and anxiety, so the question is, which way do you run when you sin? Like we've asked that before. If you run to the throne of grace, you understand and are applying the gospel. I would say the same about fear and anxiety. When you have fear and anxiety, which way do you run? If you run to the throne of grace, then you understand and are rightly applying the gospel. The problem for us is how fast do we want this to work? That fast, right? We, we want it to be lightning fast. We don't want to learn anything from it. We don't want to grow in it. We don't want to, we, we just want it fixed. Whereas, actually, that is some of the greatest space of growth you are ever going to find yourself in, is in the waiting is uh, Rankin Wilburn uses the term the doldrums. It is in the doldrums that you actually grow the most. Praise God, we don't spend all of our time there. However, the time we do spend there is, is intended in the gospel to be valuable because we're all gonna be there, right? If you just live long enough, you will find yourself faced with the doldrums. You will find yourself in a desert somewhere. You will find yourself anxious and fearful and suffering. So the question is, if, that, if that's a guaranteed thing, how then do we get any meaning, any purpose out of those guaranteed events? Peter's going to get us back to what is, what is critical for us to remember in the midst of this. So the the key truth for us this morning is that we are to suffer well by remembering Christ's lordship through his defeat of death and all the associated powers, as well as our baptism as a sign and seal of our participation in that victory in Christ. For too many of us, these, these are truths that we've kind of moved on from or we don't spend any time on. Peter's calling us back to them. Even though he dealt with it at the beginning of the letter, he's bringing us back around, and he wants for us to hear fresh again that God loves us, that Jesus is Lord as evidence of his love for us, and that the greatest evidence is that death and sin have been defeated in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So if you would give your attention to the text this morning, we'll read 3, 18 through 20. Give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, so as he's transitioning out of the previous portion, what he's saying is this this is foundational for you. He's essentially reminding them of their status as elect. He's saying that Christ suffered once. That means there is no other Superman coming. This is actually the tone of Hebrews, those passages that I think that we found so fearful, uh, especially Hebrews chapter 6 where he says, would you crucify Christ again to an open shame? What he's saying there is, if the sacrifice that Christ has made is insufficient for you, you look at that and you go, that's great. I mean, I appreciate what he did. It was 2,000 years ago. A lot's happened. A lot of things have changed technologically. Like, we, we probably need something updated. That seems a bit barbaric. We, we probably should do something different, right? If that is your mindset or your attitude, or if you think, I don't need that. that that's, that's craziness. That's cosmic child abuse. I don't want to be part of any religion where blood is spilt. I don't want to be part of, you're going to have to not be human, by the way. I don't want to be part of anything that, that has those elements to it where you're told what you have to do. I don't want to be part of this. Then who's supposed to save you? Who is it that's coming after that was more powerful than Christ himself? a greater Lord than Christ himself. Same in Hebrews chapter 10 when he says, if you trample underfoot the blood of Christ, how much more should you perish than those who would perish because of the testimony of two or three witnesses? Again, he's saying, what other sacrifice can be made on your behalf that is greater? Peter here is saying the greatest sacrifice has been given. That's why he says, once for sins. Now, why is that good news to us? How many of you are perfect? Quick show of hands. The one kid claims to be perfect back there. I know him. He's, he's not telling the truth. None of us are perfect. That means that every single one of us have sinned, maybe sinning right now as we speak, and will sin as soon as uh, FSU plays tonight, I suppose, uh, or further college football foibles go on. You are going to sin, and the good news is that you will not have to pay for that eternally. Now, let me tell you what I did not just say. I did not just say there wouldn't be consequences for your sin. I did not just say that it, it would not uh, be an issue as you stand before Christ if you have built nothing but hay, wood, and stubble on so glorious a foundation as that laid by Christ himself. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you will be saved from the fire. But what he doesn't tell you is how long you're going to be in there and how bad it's going to hurt. So it's not that we try to live perfect lives. But we need to live intentioned and thoughtful lives based on what Christ has, in fact, done for us. This fact that he has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is the pattern for us. 
How many of you struggle with those people out there who are so unrighteous? How many of you struggle with your children's friends who are patently unrighteous and teaching your children bad things? How many of you struggle with those unrighteous neighbors of yours, those unrighteous family members of yours, those unrighteous coworkers of yours, those unrighteous people who vote for the wrong people that you love to tangle with online from time to time, those people who just don't get it like you do? Remember, Jesus died. You were once unrighteous in the greatest sense of that word. And yet, he died for you. And we have to remember that it is our calling in Christ to love the unrighteous as well. It is our calling to give away all of this great thing that we've been given called the love of God because... You can never give it all away. It's eternal. It is endless. Amen? And so we ought to be giving it away in great big heaping handfuls because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And notice what it says. He did what he did so that he would bring us which way? What does it say? To God. Right? And too often, I think that that we think that Christ saves us from God. That God is something we should be afraid of because he's holy and he kind of, you know, he's, he's got fire and the wool and hair and all that weirdness. Like it's, it's, it's scary to us in a sense. And yet what Christ has done and is, is save us to God the Father. And remember who sent Christ, by the way. God did. This is God's love being expressed, which is why it's critical for us that we recognize that first before we recognize anything else. For those of you who've been with us for a little while, maybe you're visiting this morning. One of the reasons that we begin with a call to worship from God's word is that God speaks to us as father first. He says, y'all, come gather. I love you. And then that's why that very first song that we sing, if you've noticed, if you've been with us for a little while, Jesus never shows up in that first song if we can help it. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange, but what we want to emphasize is that it is God the Father expressing his love to us. That's why we have a confession. That's our response to the call to worship. And then we sing and we pray. And then we come upon, when we give our confession of sin, what's the double cure? Christ alone. That's why that second song is always about Jesus only. And that's why we give the confession of sin. That's why we, we hear that assurance of pardon from God's word. That's why the shape of our service is such that before you ever hear a word from whoever's preaching, hopefully what you have heard is that you are pardoned and you are loved. That way you hear the words that come from up here in a different key as ones who are pardoned and loved. And so this truth is what Peter's reminding them of, is that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Meaning that he rose from the grave, meaning that the wages of sin have no say over him. If Christ does what he does and lays in the grave, how is he better than anybody else in history? He's not. Him rising from the dead declares that he is not guilty, that what they have said about him was not true. 
that what God has declared of him is the truest thing of all, and most beautifully, that is given to us. That means that he broke the bonds of sin and death. One of the great chapters in all of Scripture that you ought to, you ought to spend time with and know pretty well is 1 Corinthians 15. So it has that great line in it that we sing in songs, O death, where is your victory? O sin, where is your sting? It was broken in Christ. And it no longer has a say over us. This is declaring that he is Lord. Now, these next two verses, verses 19 and 20, the great Martin Luther said this about them. They are glorious verses. I have no earthly idea what Peter meant. I'm not sure that we've improved upon that in the last 500 or so years. So I'm not going to try to tell you exactly who the spirits were that Christ went and talked to, uh, where they were when he went and talked to them, uh, or what exactly was going on. Because people on multiple, there's like five different views and really intelligent men hold at least two of them mainly. And you can make a pretty good argument for the main two, which is either that he went or that he, that he basically declared victory over the fallen angels, that they would be the spirits that are being referred to here. The reason he can say that is in 2 Peter, Peter uses the term spirits for fallen angels. However, it also could be that he was in, in, in and through Noah um, preaching the gospel to those who were disobedient during Noah's time and that the spirits here are those who were disobedient. We don't know for sure, but here's what we do know that this text is telling us very clearly, that whoever it was that he went and talked to and whatever it was that he was doing, he was declaring victory. He was making sure that beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of creation past, present, and future would know that he is Lord and King. That one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Remember in the story, I think it's in Luke's gospel, when he's in Gethsemane and they come for him, right? It's this incredible moment when they say, uh, he says, who are you looking for? And they're like, uh, I don't know, Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know why they were redneck, but I kind of feel like they were. And, and so he says this, this amazing thing. He says, I am. And they all fall down. What did he just do? He said, I just want you guys, before you take me away to recognize, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And as they're laying on the ground, totally flipped out by whatever, what has he said and the power of what he said, he says, who are you looking for? I do this thing, you know, it's kind of prophecy. Let's, let's go, boys. And they're like, oh, Jesus of Nazareth? He goes like, all right, let's do it. Let's go. But it's amazing that you have that part of the story where him proclaiming, I am, thrusts them all to the ground. And so, that is our Lord. That could have, and it also speaks to us, he could have gotten out of it. He could have slain them all. He just spoke a word and they fell to the ground in fear. He could have called down fire from heaven and incinerated every one of them, which is what every one of us in this room would do if we had that kind of power. If we had that kind of power, there'd be less people on 75, I assure you. <laughs> Susan and I were just in an auto accident. A guy ran the red light. I'm still a little sensitive about the whole thing. And so, so it's, it's, he's saying to us, I have that kind of power, but because I love you, I will endure the shame of the cross 
The shame of being in the ground for three days. What you need to understand is the entire time that he is wherever he was, and there's lots of arguments about this as well, um, which, did he descend somewhere? It doesn't matter. What matters is that he rose. But during the time that he was not risen, there's that great scene from the, the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where all of hell celebrates. In fact, they throw such a party, it just, it exhausts them all. And then he rises. What a beautiful thing that this is our Lord. That he would endure the worst of what this world has had to remotely offer so that we would be restored to the Lord our God. And he has empowered us to join him in the continuation of that work. Don't miss this. What Peter is saying to them through these letters is, yes, I know you have been exiled. Yes, I know that suffering is coming. The sword is turning your way. Take heart because it will have meaning. Even those of you who die will join the great list of the greatest martyr of all, the Lord your Jesus. And he's saying that you have been given the power to suffer as righteous for the unrighteous so the family could get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, what would it look like if that was our heart? If what people saw in us as Christians is that we were willing to love them, even in their unloveliness, that we were willing to endure with them, not creating a zero-sum game, right? The whole walk up and be like, all right, four spiritual laws, if you die today, wrong answer, moving on, right? Like there was one time I was in Greenville, South Carolina, downtown, and this kid gave me a track four different times. Never looked at me, never asked for my name. I finally, st I was a Christian at this point, so it went a lot better than some of you might have imagined. Uh, <laughs> I finally stopped. I said, young man, I am, I am so thankful that you desperately want me to go to heaven. But it would go a lot better if you knew my name. Contrast that a little later on. Some guys were also passing. I don't know what it is about Greenville and passing out tracks on a Friday night, but it was, it was hot down there. It was crazy. And so they, the other kid passed out track, and as the one kid was kind of walking away. He was tearing it up, right? And the kid yells at him. He's like, you're supposed to read it, you jerk. I pulled him aside. I said, all right, let's, let's talk technique for a second. Uh, we need to work on some things here. The spirit, definitely, now I don't know about the spirit either, but he, we need to work on some stuff. But we, what would it look like if we genuinely were willing to abide with people who are broken and in need and suffering, which we are all guaranteed to do in a fallen world, even those who don't believe in God, by the way, suffer, Right? I mean, everybody hurts, just to quote Michael Stipe for a second. Uh, <laughs> uh, now that song's starting to play in my head. Uh, and so we, we all go through it, and what would it look like if, if we who had the firm foundation of the answer didn't waver based on how they responded? What if we could evidence the firmness of the death, resurrection, and ascension, and coming again of Christ? This is what it means to hope. 
This is why Peter is so, that word hope shows up so much in both letters because this is what it looks like. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. It doesn't mean that we feel a certain way about it, but it does mean that we cling to the crucified come hell or high water. Too often I think we think it ought to look clean and it ought to be perfect and that that it ought to be uh, noteworthy. No, the most beautiful of all is the struggle itself. The most beautiful of all is that Christ is exalted and not us. And so what we have in this text is the declaration that Jesus is Lord of all. Listen to what Paul Gardner says about this text. He says, to know that Jesus is Lord of all is truly one of the greatest possible encouragements for all Christians, but specifically those experiencing the power of Satan and his forces through persecution. Sometimes it will seem that evil has the upper hand in life. Here, Peter reminds us that that the truth is that Christ is ascended on high and over all powers and authorities. Our lives are in his hands and he will watch over his own and deliver us just as faithfully as he delivered Noah and his family. So let me ask you this. What are some ways that the lordship of Christ over death and all of its associated powers either currently helps you or could help you in the midst of your fears and anxieties. Again, remember, it's not that it will look clean. It's not that it will, it's gonna happen in a flash. It's something that has to be cultivated over time. And it is something that will, will be a great gift to you and your family and all of your neighbors as you grow in it. This isn't just about you. It's about every single one of them who doesn't know God. It's about every single one of them who loses their way. It's about every single one of us who gets lost sometimes. So how might we grow in this? Again, remembering there is no shortcut. If there is a besetting sin in the church, and there are many, I am sure, but one of them that seems to be this comes up so often is we just want a shortcut. We don't want to do the long, hard work of becoming. One of the podcasts I was listening to said that most marriages last about 12 to 14 years, which means that we're probably genetically created to be serially monogamous. Blah, blah, blah. And that, that, that has a ring of truth to it because there's that whole seven-year and 10-year itch and about the 14-year itch and all those kinds of things. But here's what's interesting. Sue and I will be married 19 years coming up. And, and yeah, there, there have been some hard times for both of us, by the way. Neither one of us, as it turns out, were perfect. And, and, but what I know now is that I love her so much more than when we started. And I can't wait if the Lord grants another 10 or 20 or 30, let's get crazy, uh, <laughs> then what a beautiful thing that will be to continue. And it's actually been a picture of the gospel. If in the 19 years that I've been with Susan, that, that, that I'm growing, and, and let me say this, it wasn't because she was always easy or always acquiesced. Susan, do you always acquiesce? She can dig her heels in pretty good, actually. It's impressive to see sometimes. It's hard for me sometimes because I'm impressed on one side and 
maddened on the other. Uh, but but it, it's not always, it's not, because it, I know some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, I mean, it's easy for you to say. You're married to a saint. No, I'm not, actually. And I, and I think very highly of my wife, and she comes pretty darn close. But she's not, and I'm not either, which is not as hard for you to figure out. And so, uh, uh, but, but what's true is we've cultivated, we've fought hard, and our children have seen it. And they're impressed by it, actually. And other people have witnessed it as well, uh, that, that we've actually cultivated and fought for what we have and invested all along the way. And what I've noticed is that it's kind of a glimmer of heaven that in the same way as we learn about God's love, it should grow over time. But you've got to invest in it. You've got to cultivate it. You've got to keep seeking water in the middle of the desert. And sometimes it's not as much as you would like. Sometimes you don't grow as fast. But it is in those times where you face suffering that your roots go deeper and the tree grows stronger. This is what Peter's trying to get us to understand, that in the midst of your fear and anxiety and suffering, turn always to the Lordship of Christ. And now he's going to pivot and say, and use this means of grace, your baptism. Something that I don't think we spend a near enough time meditating on, because again, it's kind of like something that we just checked off, right? Yeah, I've been baptized. That's out of the way. But the scripture, uh, Paul is, is known for this. He uses baptism all the time. In fact, one of the great chapters on baptism, not as an argument for mode or who, but as an argument for why and what is Romans chapter six. One of the great chapters in scripture that you ought to be able to turn to quickly and understand what your baptism signifies and seals in Christ. What Paul tells us is that it, it actually sets you free from being a slave to sin. Now, not baptism. Water doesn't do it. It's the person and work of Christ as signified and sealed in that water. Now, Peter's going to help us understand that a little bit better. If you would turn again to the text, and let's hear verses 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, this being Noah and his family being saved on the waters of judgment now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, it's important that we read this correctly because you may say, well, I think Peter just said baptism saves you. He's talking to people who are already baptized. They are baptized ones already. And what he's saying is actually is that the saving in this case is from the present evil age, the suffering that is coming, it essentially bolsters you against the judgment that's coming. So it won't affect you in the same way. In the same way that Noah and his family rode on the flood, right? They participated in the flood. They were they were shut up inside the ark for quite some time. And they witnessed all of that death and destruction. It wasn't that they were, they were uh, outside of it. In the same way, we are in the world. And we have been saved through judgment that fell on Christ and the judgment that will come again in and through the world and God in Christ's return. You will be saved from all that. 
You are protected from it in a unique way because of the work of Christ. And so what he's saying is, look back to your baptism. Not as water that was sprinkled on you because just taking a nice bath and cleaning up the outside of the cup doesn't do you any good. Think of when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you whitewash tombs. The outside looks beautiful. But what was wrong with the inside? It was deeply corrupt and undealt with. We, if we are not careful, are guilty of doing the same thing over and over and over again, being concerned with the externals instead of cultivating the internals. What your baptism signifies is that Christ has redeemed you all the way down and that you are being transformed into a new creation. You are not what you were. And your baptism is a sign and seal of this. It signifies that Christ died for you and he rose again and that is applied to you. Just as he entered into the waters of judgment on the cross, just as the flood was the waters of judgment in the world, he comes up out of that just as Noah and his family come out of that flood and are redeemed and become, if you remember, they're given the same mandate given to Adam and Eve. They participate in the recreation of the world. And you may say, well, they didn't do such a hot job because Genesis 11 comes pretty quick. Thus the need for a savior, greater than any man could be. And so in our baptism, what it says to us is our sin has been put to death in judgment that fell on Christ alone. And we have been raised to newness of life. His resurrection applied to us. Now walk in it. Cultivate it. Think on it. Improve your baptism, which is language that we use and we get from the Westminster Confession of Faith and is uh, one of the questions that is in your, um, in your material. This is question 167 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's a, it's a beautiful question and worthy an answer and is worthy of your meditation this Lord's Day Sabbath and worthy for you to keep around so that every time we have a baptism here or you attend someone's baptism, you go back and you remember. So I want you, it's a lengthy answer, but it's worth you hearing out loud. And my encouragement to you is go back and think about it because it is, uh, your baptism is the declaration of Christ's lordship over you. How is our baptism to be improved by us? And we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the way. It says, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long. So you are not to move on from your baptism. You're not to forget it as if it were a religious thing that you just needed to do. You got that out of the way and you keep trucking. He goes on to say, especially in the time of temptation. How many of you turn to your baptism and use it to remind yourself of who you are and who is Lord in your time of temptation? I can't raise my hand either right now, but one day I hope to. And when we are present at the administration of it to others so that when someone else is baptized, we should remember and improve upon our own. He goes on to say, by serious, listen to the language, By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, 
the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism. So he's saying even there, even in your having failed to do this, remember your baptism. Because it is the, the, the shouting louder than Sinai to say, no, you have been redeemed. Your sin has been judged on the cross. Judgment has fallen and it is not to be applied to you. Ultimately, he goes on to say, and our engagements by growing up to assurance of pardon in sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. Now, what does it mean that it's sealed? It just means that what on Christ's part, what he has done is guaranteed. The question is whether or not you're going to walk in it and whether or not you're going to cultivate it. But as far as he's concerned, He's done the full work so that you could have all of the blessing and benefit that comes from it. Again, the question is, will you access it? Will you apply it to your own life or suffer the consequence of failing to know who you are as a baptized one? Goes on to say, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin which means the taking control over and doing away with, and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness, and those that have therein given up their names to Christ, and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. Now you notice that brotherly love language, Peter has used that in the passage that Matt preached on last week and in a previous passage. So our identity as baptized ones and the benefit of that means of grace to us is to help us in what is probably one of the hardest possible things. How many of you chose the people sitting in your row to go to church with? Like you said, like Wes was like, oh, I, I want to know where Paul Wagner goes to church because that's the church I want to go to, Right? Most, most of us did not choose the people in a row or, or the side of the room. Like, and so we're having to figure out how to live in community with each other, not having agreed on anything other really than Christ. That's tough. And there's lots of stuff you didn't choose. You didn't choose it. We don't ever do two songs in a row except when we do the doxology in that last song. You don't choose most of the songs we sing. You'd like for it to be a little bit more congregational than it probably is. You don't choose the sermon series. There's lots of things you don't get to weigh in on, and yet you have to try to walk in brotherly love, maybe not agreeing with every aspect. Maybe liking one speaker over another as if that were the point. Our consumerism. And so... It is critical that we remember who we are as baptized ones and that the unifying thing is the, the eternal work of Jesus Christ. And that is a bond that cannot be broken. And that we would walk in his lordship knowing that our suffering will have meaning. So how often do you return to your baptism and what it signifies and seals as a means of grace in a time of suffering? If you don't, take heart. 
When they wrote this back in the late 1500s, they weren't doing it so hot either. But we can improve. We can cultivate. We can remind each other that we are in fact baptized. And of the, more importantly, not just that you're baptized, but the truth of what that means, that you are united to Christ who crushed the head of the serpent already who has defeated death and sin. And as Hebrews says, even though it doesn't look like he's Lord right now, he does in fact reign and everything has been placed under his feet. He is in fact Lord. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22 teaches us two things that we need to remember in our time of suffering. The first is that Christ's lordship through his defeat of death and all its associated powers is true and applied to us. And secondly, that that is signified and sealed in our baptism. We have participated in the victory of Christ. That's why we sang that song, My Victory. It is also why Paul says what he says in Romans chapter eight, another great chapter. There's just a few chapters you need to remember by heart. Uh, But it's just what he says about we are more than conquerors. If God be for us, who can be against us. That's not something that we just say. That's something we have to live. But you don't do that in arrogance. That's the problem. So often I think the church has done that in arrogance. You know? And that's not the way we're to do it because we are here for the life of the world. The very ones who would say, I am against you. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to love them in a way that doesn't make any sense at all to this world. And the world will know who we are by the love that we have for one another. That's why it becomes so critical that unity within the church ought not to be something that we ever give up easily. That's why we shouldn't uh, say things and do things that cause any sort of fracturing to the very body of Christ that has been given to us as a means of grace. If we should fight for anything, it ought to be love. And that we would love each other and that we would love those who so desperately need to know that Jesus is Lord. Listen to what David R. Helm says about this passage to sum it up. He says, we know what the text says. Jesus was victorious and completely vindicated. We know what the text is intended to do. Encourage the reader with the certain and fixed truth that in the end, those who are in Christ will win. What a great day for us to celebrate the Lord's table, that we would have the opportunity to have a means of grace nourish our hearts and souls, that we would celebrate that judgment has for the believer in fact fallen and it fell full on Christ, in full. That means your sin, past, present, and future has been taken care of. Again, doesn't mean the consequences aren't still around. Does it mean there's still not aspects of it that you're going to have to deal with? But what it does mean is that it does not declare your identity. It cannot say that you are not son or daughter of the God Most High. 